It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. So the show, even though we're recording this on Friday, it's going to be published probably on Monday because we have had a debacle of a morning. <laughs> um, it's one of those things where we start off the day and there's sunshine and the flowers are blooming and the birds are chirping. Um, we even went and got a spicy chicken biscuit this morning and then... Went and voted. Voted in a runoff election we have here locally and then all of a sudden I get a phone call from my wife and she lets me know that she's lost our... Senior citizen, blonde, <laughs> deaf, pug dog. So um, we ran over there and, and gave it a good value and effort. And good news, Winston has been found. But that kind of drained all morning. Uh, it's probably ridiculous to drop everything and take my entire employment base over to my house to look for the dog. But that's how much you care for your pets. So well, I, think, I think everybody would do the same. It's that and coupled with this weekend is Brian's oldest daughter's birthday. So this would have been, you know, Horrific news if something would have happened to the family dog and, and to compound during his oldest daughter's birthday weekend. So, so you know, that's crisis a, averted. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing that, by the way, if you're jo just now joining us, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be kind of going over some of the comments we got from the, the Bill Gross show we did last, mm -hmm. um, episode. And then we're, we're going to take it a step further. And I'm going to tell you how very simplified asset allocation going all the way back to 1955 till actually in the last year, how different asset allocation portfolios would have held up through different periods of time to really for the whole purpose of telling you what you need to do is put together a plan, don't let all this noise get in the way, and focus on what you've got going on. If you structure it the correct way, you're going to be able to sleep much better at night and know that you're on essentially autopilot. Um, but before we do that, I've got to do one sidebar. Bo, as many of you guys are aware, has been on a three-year journey. I remember when I, I don't want to say tricked him, <laughs> but I did kind of convince him to go the harder path than probably most would have. Because we, we here at Preston and Cleveland, where, you know, our day job, the, the Fiala Financial Planning Firm, we like if you want to be on the partnership track, I want you to have multiple credentials. And these aren't the credentials where um, you pay 250 bucks and, um, you know, watch a two-hour presentation that you get a credential. I want legitimate credentials. I want either, you know, the certified financial planner, the CFP, the CPA, um, something, you know, CFA. Uh, there's there's definitely different credentials that are a little higher on the food chain than others, and I, I want legitimate credentials here. And Bo, after he got a CFP, a certified financial planner, you know, he, he, he realized that this was probably the time in his life to go the next step. So, about three years ago, he started trying to work on a CFA. And the, the Chartered Financial Analyst, which is the CFA, is, is a credential that is held by most of your hedge fund managers, your mutual fund managers, your institutional advisors. The, this is for analysts who are really digging in deep and getting down into the analytics of companies and financial statements, insurance companies, to where they're almost going back to telling you how things are done. I mean, they're really getting down to the nuts and bolts of how an operation works. So Bo started on that path. He passed the first exam, which had a pass rate of what, Bo? 39% on the first 39%. exam. 39%. So these are all financial individual, you know, people in the financial industry taking tests, taking this 39% pass. We all cheered for him. We were excited for Bo. We were like, that's great. You made it through the first cut. 
took the second test a year later because they do this. You do this on year increments. He took the second test. What was the pass rate on that one? 42%. 42% of that 39% of the previous test. Then took that test. Bo made it through that and passed as well. So the week before his wedding, he took his third test. And I want to say it's his final test if he passed. If he didn't, he was going to do this process again. But we got the good news this past week. Bo, you passed that. And what was the pass rate on that one? Pass rate was 52% on level three. So we did the math. This is how nerdy we are. Y'all know it. That's why you expect it. You kind of, you know, this is all of our revenge for anybody who was good in school and you're trying to figure out, do you know, nerds really get to have the last laugh? We are kind of the proof of that. And that we found out that Bo, if you'd have done that mathematically, 8%, if you took 100 people, Eight of that hundred people would have made it through those three exams in their first attempt. Pretty incredible. Kudos to you, Bo. I'm proud of you. I hope that um, your head makes it out the door <laughs> as, as we build this up. I mean, you've already gotten our compliance consultants have sent you cookies. I mean, you've gotten a lot of kudos. But I know your biggest thing is now that you're married, it all worked out perfectly. You did all that hard work because there was a lot of weekends he was studying. There was a lot of nights he was studying. And I don't know if that would have been as easy after the marriage. Oh, because, certainly not. Because, you know, life gets, you get caught up. And that's why I explain to him, once you have kids, once you, you know, you get married, there are other people wanting your time, rightfully so. And it was good to go ahead and knock that stuff out. So I, I'm proud of you in that. So everybody just know that's a big deal that Bo got that. So now he's two credentialed. He's got the CFP as well as the CFA pretty well. He'll have the CFA as soon as they give him the attaboy, you can go ahead and put And we do this card. for you guys. We do this for you guys, those of you that are clients out there in podcast world, but also for the listeners because we want to we want to have a depth of knowledge that not everyone else out there has so we can provide a service to you guys that not everyone else provides. So that's our charge and that's what we kind of try to do um, as, as well as we can. Well, I like to put it that we're goofy enough, you know, make this fun to listen to, but we've got the pedigree that we might actually have some chops to this. You know, it actually, this is not a bunch of fluff. With that said, you know, as you're listening to this, we got a, we got a, iTunes loves us. I mean, we typically, you guys have been awesome for us, put a lot of positive things. We got an iTunes comment in the last week. I think we got a one or two stars. It was a two star. Kind of, kind of hurt my feelings a little bit because it said we were very simple or non complex. Yeah. I don't understand that because the stuff I'm going to give you guys today, there is not a single you turn on Fox Business, you turn on CNBC, you read the Wall Street Journal, nobody's going as deep as we're going into these numbers. So I would ask you guys, if you've been listening to the show, you like what you're hearing, you're getting something out of it, maybe we've even touched your financial life, put something out there on iTunes. We don't have a corporation pushing this company. This is all grassroots. It's you guys that is pushing the the, the success of this show. And, and we don't get anything for that. All that happens is is that keeps us on the featured side on iTunes. Keeps so it us keeps relevant. us it keeps us relevant and allows us to, to get new listeners. So that's why if you leave comments for us, it really, really helps us out. So I wanted to go and follow up on the Bill Gross show. Remember, we did the, the show... Last episode was on Bill Gross, who basically said that the stock market was a big Ponzi scheme and good luck because obviously stock investors have been taking advantage of the government as well as the population and their workers for so many years. There's no way stock growth can keep up with GDP growth of a country. You know, you know what I loved about doing that episode? Cause it's been what? Probably it's been a few weeks since we've done that one, right? Right. 
Have you noticed that since we've done that, there have been New York Times articles, Wall Street Journal articles, plus the financial publication? We're, it seems like everyone else has we were kind on the of tried on. Of it. I think we were that's on the front end. That's kind of exciting. I, I, like the, I like that that's how that worked and out. And that's why it's still relevant that we can talk about because there's still articles coming out. I saw one just yesterday. But I wanted to, one of the things we did was we have some, some institutional managers that we've become friends with. We even work with them on, on doing analysis of things. And one of them we sent over a quick email right before last week's show. And, and I don't think Dave would mind me mentioning his name. Dave works for, he's actually the owner of Door Creek Capital Management. We sent Dave an email saying, Hey, Dave, what are your thoughts on Bill Gross's comments? I want to share a little bit of what Dave wrote because he didn't have enough time to write us before last recording, but I thought this was priceless because he brought up some points that we had missed. And then I've got a, an email from a listener named John who, you know, if this was still the Olympics going on, he stuck the landing. It was awesome. So let, let, let me read what Dave our institutional advisor who gives us a lot of great advice. If I know we have a lot of advisors out there who listen to the show, you need to look up Dave and his company. Like I said, it's Door Creek Capital Management, some good stuff. Um, Dave went on and wrote, I, I cut off some of this. I'm going to just read the summary. It says, I love Bill and have a lot of money in several of his funds, but those funds are run in his area of expertise. Debt instruments and derivatives based on them. Unquestionably, few are better at understanding this asset class and how to generate superior total returns from them. Then here's the, the big one. However, when it comes to equities, well, when he espouses anything on equities, I refer to him as Mr. Dow 5000. <laughs> and he says, remember that famous call by him back in September of 2002, right at the end of the tech bubble bear market in stocks, when he said the Dow would drop another 40% to 5,000. We know how that macro call turned out. The Dow is now over 13,000. Gross attempts to tie GDP growth with equity, equity returns. Look at a chart of the S&P 500 annual returns going back to the 1950s. Now look at a chart of annual GDP growth rates. See any patterns? I don't. Companies in many ways determine how fast they want to attempt to grow. They also determine what their sustainable profit margins will be. The result of these decisions ultimately determine share price and return on a shareholder's original investment. It is a company's internal activities and their customers' response to them that determine stock prices and returns, not some government measure of aggregate output. Sorry, Bill. And I'm going to cut it off there. I think that um, Dave kind of nailed it. And, you know, that's a good lead on before we jump into today's show topic as we dig into the numbers a little deeper. This is a listener email. Sometimes, you know, you get off the, the we do the recording, and after, right after we, we shut it all down, I th look at Bo and I go, you know, I think that was okay, but there was a few things I wish I could have said. Well, John, listener, I'm not going to, you know, I don't like to give last names, wrote us an email, and I'm telling you, this nailed it. Um, it says, Brian and Bo. I really enjoyed your latest podcast. I've been a loyal listener since 2006, but I'm not one to write emails or comments. So I, what is that when people call in a first-time listener, first-time, you know, or first-time? Long-time listener, first-time caller. There you go. That's what I was messing up. But um, I've been a loyal listener since 2006, but I'm not one to write emails or comments, which reminds me, I should probably make my first comment on iTunes. Hey, John, that is very timely in light of what I just said. So it carries on. He says, anyways, I believe you missed a very important piece of why investors receive a return for investing in stocks, or, for that matter, bonds. Bo did a very nice job. Keep the head in check, Bo. <laughs> Bo did a very nice job of explaining why an investor would give up a dollar in the hopes of receiving future cash flows. However, the other side that needs explanation is why a company would accept that trade-off. Here is my explanation. Capitalism requires four things. Land, 
labor, capital, and entrepreneurial knowledge, which is i.e. an idea. A business requires capital supplied by the investor to purchase the land and labor and invest in the project slash idea. The return the investor receives is the cost of that capital to the business. Capital may be purchased in two ways, via a loan, which is a bond, or a piece of ownership, which is the stock. For loans, the cost of capital is interest or coupon payments. For stocks, the free market sets the price of the capital for each public company so that healthy companies have relatively higher prices or lower costs of capital because one share can garner more capital and more risky companies have relatively lower prices. That, that all ties into that price to earnings ratio that we talked about in the last show too. A company's cost of capital for stocks is payment of dividend and foregone capital appreciation received by the investor rather than the business. I find that the understanding as to how, uh, as to why an investor receives a return, a very important piece of the puzzle when debunking Bill Gross's assertion that the stock market is a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme offers a fake return because no value is created. However, business create value and wealth, a piece which is given to the investor as reward for taking on risk. Thank you so much. So th- thank you very much for your past and hopefully many years of financial wisdom and the occasional Disney story. I like the Disney story part at the end. But, um, John, spot on. Couldn't agree with you more. Great, great email. I also want to go and bring up some data. I mentioned it last week, but I didn't follow through. And I, you know, I can't help but think maybe that's why I got the bad comment is because I didn't take it that extra step. I didn't finish the drill. So here's what I went and pulled. I went and pulled General Electric's earnings and profit all the way back to 1955, and then I pulled their earnings and profit in 1973. Why'd you pick 1973, Brian? It was a great year, bud. <laughs> that was the year I was born. The, the year of Brian. <laughs> That's right. 1973 was a good year. Um, so, and then also, we, the, the, this, the research I found ended in 2005, so we kind of stopped with the 2005 period here. Um, I pulled this off CNN Money. And, and it has in Fortune magazine, it's somehow all, it seems like they pulled every financial institute, you know, publication they could to do this research. But back in 1955, General Electric had revenue of $2 billion, 959,000. So, so right at $3 So right at $3 billion. Their profit in 1955 was $213 million. So fast forward to, two th- I mean, 1973, the good year of 1973. Now, when we say Say profit. We're talking about that's after everything, after expenses and all the rest. Yeah. That is the profit the company made, right? That's the profit right before they start issuing dividends and other things and keeping the money in house. Perfect. So two hundred thirteen million dollars. We fast forward to nineteen seventy three. So you know, we fast forward almost twenty years, and we have um, the the revenue in nineteen seventy three was ten billion two hundred forty thousand. So a little over ten billion dollars. Their profit was five hundred thirty million. So then we fast forward to 2005. In 2005, listen to this, the revenue was $152 billion, and the profit was right at $16,593,000. So if you round it up, it would be $17 billion. So what is the growth rate from 1955 all the way to 2005 of that profit, not the revenue, but just the profit, because that's what we care about is how much was left to put in the back pocket of that company. And it was 7,790% increase over 1955. 
That's incredible. If you want to put that in terms of if you invested a thousand dollars, you turn that thousand dollars into close to eighty thousand dollars. Wow. Just off of, you know, from 1955 to 2005. Pretty incredible stuff there. Um, think about this. I went ahead and said, well, let's compare that to the stock prices. When I went on Yahoo Finance and pulled up historical returns, really they would only go back to like 1970. So I did 1973. I did January the 2nd of 1973. The adjusted stock price of General Electric, if you take into account stock splits as well as dividends, and the dividends are a big part of this, so so pay attention to that because I think I'm going to explain something about the dividends here in a minute. The adjusted price, now the actual price back then in 73 was $73.87. But if you adjusted it for the stock splits as well as the dividends that were paid out by General Electric since 1973, its adjusted price is $0.43 cents a share. Okay. So less than a dollar, less than 50 cents. If you fast forward till yesterday, August 16th of 2012, the stock price is $21.05. So if you take just put $21.05, divide that by 0.43 for the 1973 price, you can see that there was a 4,895% increase. Pretty incredible. I compared that to the profit increase. From 1973 to 2005, there was a profit increase of 3,131%. Now you ask, well, what's the difference? Why is there such a, a spread there? I think the dividends make a big part of that. Um, because, you know, the dividends is the cash back that's coming to the investor for their investment. But either or, pretty incredible stuff. You know, you think about that in the stock price terms, you know, with the dividend being counted, you give $1,000, it'd be worth close to $50,000 just in the, the 38 years, well, I guess going on 39 years since I have a birthday coming up soon. Um, but very, very interesting stuff. And that's the thing, I, I didn't finish the drill last time and give you the actual numbers but that proves a point. That also shows why stock market investing is not a Ponzi scheme. Right. Now, with that said, do I want you all to invest 100% in stocks? The answer is no. We've been having some great emails with some of our listeners because they've, um, they wrote us and they said, Brian, you know, talk to me a little bit about this asset allocation idea because I've had my money completely in the stock market because I don't want to miss out on any rate of return. The problem with that is, is it doesn't reflect, you, th you have a year like 2008 where the stock market loses, you know, close to 40%, you're probably going to lose some sleep over that. You have a lot of volatility and there's no reason to take that much risk if you, if you don't have to. You want to try to get as much return, but you want to get return that takes into account your risk profile and risk profile not only means how much you can handle but almost what your risk capacity is, meaning you might be to the age, maybe you're 55, 60, 65 years old, you can't go risk it. Even though you might be the biggest risk taker in the world, you can't handle it anymore. So you have to pay attention to your risk profile. You have to pay attention to your goals. If you're used to living off $40,000 a year, you're not going to need to save as much as somebody who's living off $200,000 a year. So you got to keep in check with what your goals are. And then you also need to pay attention to what your age is. How many years do you have to focus on those goals? So we went and we said, okay, we hear about asset allocation all the time. Let's talk about some historical models. And we are nerdy enough. We've put together some, some details, some research 
going all the way back, I actually got it wrong in the intro. I said 1955. I think I just had that on the head because I'd done the research with right. the stock market. We actually went back. The Internet's an amazing thing. It has allowed us to go pull all kind of data. We were able to go back to 1953, all the way through the end of last year, so December of 2011. And we've titled this research, we call it the Power Diversification and Time. And the reason I say and time is because you're going to see patience is truly a virtue, a virtue that will pay you if you don't react and make some silly reaction and, and get out of the markets or get out of your portfolio at the wrong time. And that's why asset allocation will help you too is because if you spread it out right, it's going to moderate that volatility greatly. So when the market loses 38%, maybe you only lose half of that. And then you, you're going to still be upset, don't get me wrong, but you're going to be like, it's okay, I'll make it back. So we looked at this, and what I've got here is very simplified asset allocation. If you go to look at this chart, the way we've got it broken down is we go very conservative all the way down to very aggressive. And the top of the most conservative, we have zero stocks. And when I talk about stocks, I'm talking about this S&P 500. Very easy indicator to go on the Internet and pull that historical data all the way back to the 50s. The other one is bonds. And we use 90% bonds in the most conservative portfolio. Bonds, we're talking about the 10-year Treasury bond. You can go pull government data on tre you know 10-year Treasury bonds pretty easily off the Internet. And then lastly, we got cash. And um, we did 10% in this most conservative portfolio. And cash is just using the three-month T-bill rate. And what we found is if you went and you put together a very simplified asset allocation, like I said, most conservative being no stocks, 90% bonds, 10% cash, you would have found the worst year you would have had from 1953 to December of 2011 was you could have lost 10%. Well, the question, we've been showing this to clients and prospects for years, but I asked Bo this time, I said, Bo, go pull the internal data. When was that? You know, was, was that 2008? Was that some other period? When was the worst year to own 90% of your portfolio in bonds and 10% cash because maybe you're a retired person and you want a very conservative portfolio? We found that that was actually 2009. It was only a few years back that you would have lost 10% with that very conservative portfolio. Now, that portfolio, very conservative portfolio, you think, wow, that's probably never going to make much money. It actually averages over that 50-plus year period a 6.3% annualized rate of return. That is the average over that 50-year period. Well, we found that there was a one-year period where it made 30.3%. That was in 1982. So we all know why that is. That's when we all hear the stories of, you know, we were in those periods where we had double-digit you know, CD rates, mm -hmm. interest rates were pretty very high back then. So you can imagine that's why the bond market was booming during those periods. So we then we looked at, because we have a bunch of other asset allocation analysis here, but we've said, let's go ahead and go with the most basic balanced allocation you have, which is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. What, what, what would that do? I say 40% bonds. I actually mean 60% stocks, 30% bonds, 10% cash. But we consider that a 60-40 portfolio, yeah, which is essentially what most of your balanced funds out yeah, there are made up out of. So if you look at that, the worst one-year period in that 50-plus year period would be 2008 where you could have lost, and this is on a one-year basis, 16.17%. Now so the, think about that. What did the stock market lose in uh, in two thousand and eight? Wasn't it like thirty seven percent with dividends reinvested? With dividends, it was thirty seven percent. So by simply diversifying, you're still owning the stock market sixty percent. But simply diversifying, 
you cut that in more than half going down to 16.17% loss. That's pretty powerful showing you what diversification can do for your portfolio. And, and remember, that's an, even with a 60-40 split, you're looking at a, an annualized rate of return at about 9.5% from a historical basis on that 50-plus year history. The best one year was actually 1954 with a 32.67%. Now, we, we said, what about the people who, who really don't believe in this asset allocation and they just want to load it up and maybe they go 90% stocks, 10% cash because they want to keep a little liquidity, but the rest of it, they're hitting the accelerator. The worst year you could have had there was 2008. Imagine that. And that's like we said, it was 37% um, for the stock market. So this portfolio, which is 90% of the stock market, was a 33.3% loss. It averages a rate of return of about 11%. And then its best year was also 1954 with 47% rate of return. Must have been good back in 1954 to be an investor. <laughs> um, I do one of, the, one of the things I thought was interesting, looking at how often, if you looked on an annual basis, is the stock market, I mean, is this portfolio going to make money this year or is it going to lose money? And we just did it. If it's made money during the year, that's a positive. If it lost money, that's a negative. And we said, how many years in this 50-plus year period from 1953 to, to end of 2011 did the the 90% bond, 10% cash portfolio make money? The answer was 81% of the time. So eight out of 10 years, you would make money with this portfolio. We did it on the 60-40 split. And what we found was it was also 81%. So once again, eight out of 10 years, you would have made money. We did that on the most aggressive, and it was 76% of the time. So it's funny how eight out of 10 years, and that kind of ties in, I always tell people, you can typically count on two recessions or two downturns in the financial markets about every decade. And we've seen that. It's just that they've been much deeper than usual over the last few years. And I think that's had a big impact. So remember, this this research we've got, we titled, we titled it The Power Diversification and Time. Because look what happens when you add, instead of looking at this on an annual basis, we went to a three-year period. What we found was when you go to a three-year basis, Remember the, the most conservative at, at 90% bonds, 10% cash with it on an annual basis, it had a, a rate of return of about 6% a year on average. When you look at the three year average, it's 6.3. So it's about the same. Um, but look at what happened on the losses. Instead of being a 10% loss, now it's gone down to a 0.42% loss is the worst it's ever had. And that was from 1967 through 69. So it was a completely different period than even 2009. And that, that's 0.42% per year for three consecutive years. So this is an annualized number that we're giving you. Um, the best was a, a, a close, if you round it up, it was 19.7. But if you round it up, a 20% rate of return, and that was 1984 through 1986. You know, that was um, when you had a lot of things going on out there in the bond marketplace. Go down to the 60-40 split. The worst three years, I was shocked by this, Bo. This was mm -hmm. really surprising to me. It was actually the dot-com bubble. The worst three years for this type of portfolio was a loss of 4.66% per year for that three-year period, and that was from 2000 all the way to 2002. The best period of turn, rate of return was 226 and that was 95 to 97. A lot of good stuff going on at the, at the late 90s. That was during the Bill Clinton pre uh, presidency, and, you know, we had a... Pretty incredible things going on economically with, you know, technology and innovation. Um, you know, we kind of look back now and go, wow, kind of like to have some of those years back. And then look at the most aggressive. You can see from 2000, 2002 was the biggest loss also on the 90% stocks, 10% cash portfolio with a loss of 12.8% per year for those three years. The best 
three years was also the 95 to 97 period. Once again, the equities were blowing it out back then with a 28.55% rate of return. Um, one of the things I always tell people about that period from 95 to 97 because I was managing money then was you probably wouldn't have loved your financial advisor at that time. As you can see that in those numbers, we're talking about 90% stocks, 10% cash, and you would have an annualized rate of return of close to 29% per year. If you had a financial advisor trying to tell you to diversify, you'd have looked at him and be like, are you crazy? How quickly we learned, though, as things adjusted in the early 2000s and then continued on in the late 2000s, you got to diversify. No matter how great it looks for a small period of time, think long-term when you're looking at your asset classes. Um, I did think it was interesting. Remember how I told you it was 81% of the time on that most conservative portfolio? If you stay invested for three years, that 81% increases all the way up to 98% of the time you would have made money with that very conservative portfolio. On the 60-40 split, you increase from 81% all the way up to 91% of the time you would have made money. See how strong it is just to stay the course? Look at what happens. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big increase. It's about a 10% increase. The most aggressive went from 76% of the time you'd make money on a one-year basis. So if you look at it on a three-year basis, it increases all the way up to 86% of the time. But something magical happens when we go to five years. Watch this. I flip over to the, the research data to five years. Same data. It's just now we're looking at it on a five-year basis instead of a one-year basis. And why is that important, you're asking yourself? And why are you loading us up with these numbers? This is why. When I tell people, they call me up and say, Brian, I'm getting married in about three years. Where do we need to invest the money? I look around and I say, cash. And then they say, Brian, I'm thinking about buying a car in two years. I've been putting money away. Where should I invest that money? I look around and I say, cash. And the reason is, is because if you can give that money and put it in what I consider long-term, long-term really is about seven, anything over seven years. But we'll go ahead for conversation today. Five years is kind of getting to be the point, especially if you look at consumer behavior research. We've talked about the Dalbar studies in the past. If you want to Google Dalbar, you can see some pretty interesting information on holding periods of the typical investor. But five years, is, is you can consider that getting into the long-term category. And if you can put your money away for five years, no matter how bad things are, typically and historically, You've been rewarded for staying the course. Remember the power of patience. It really is a virtue that pays you. So look at this. If you look at um, the most conservative portfolio, what's the worst five-year period of loss it's ever had? And it was 1955 to 59. It lost 0.01%. I don't even really consider that a loss. That's almost like a rounding error. It practically stayed right where it was for five years. Yeah. I mean, you didn't lose money. You didn't make money. The best period of time was um, 82 to 86, very similar to kind of what we were reading about on the three-year with an 18.3% with those bonds. That's a very bond-heavy portfolio. Um, if you look at the 60-40 split, the worst period there was from 1970 to 74. This is the worst period, but it still made 1.6%. Think about what that year. means. You're looking at the most popular portfolio allocation in the world, a 60% stock, 40% bond split. And in the worst five years, in the entire 55-plus year period that we're looking at here, it still made money. And it wasn't horrible. I mean, it's percent and a half. That's not breaking your land speed records, but... It's making a percent and a half every year for five years straight in the worst period ever. I was shocked it wasn't the, anything in the 2000s, but that was back in the 70s. And um, the best 
Um, Five-year period for that 60-40 split was actually a 20.01%, so it made 20% per year for that five-year period. If you look at the most aggressive, the worst five years for the most aggressive portfolio would be um, actually a loss of 1.68% from 2000 to 2004. So that was coming out of the dot-com bubble. Um, the best uh, five-year period was still at 95 to 99 when stocks were booming, and that's a 26% rate of return per year. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, when you look at the, the percent positive, how likely you are to be in a positive year. If you look at the most conservative, 98% of the time um, you would have made money. And then I thought this was really interesting. This is the power of diversification, and this is why adding different asset classes does help. The 60-40 portfolio, 100% of the time over the 55-year-plus history, 1953 all the way to 20, end of 2011, there has not been a five-year period where if you just stayed the course, you wouldn't make money with a 60-40 split. Pretty incredible using these indexes. And then looking at the um, most aggressive, which was 90% S&P and 10% cash, 89% of the time, you would have made money even with the most aggressive portfolio. So I know we've thrown out a ton of data at you guys today, but the really the, the whole purpose of, of going through all this is I want you guys to understand that looking at the, the worst years, looking at the averages, because that's what I also thought was interesting. When you look at the five years, the average for that 55-plus year period for the most conservative was 6% a year. The average for the 60-40 was 8.9%, so close to 9% per year. And then the, 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 the very aggressive was a 9.93, so close to 10%. So you can kind of look at those numbers, and I know, you know, we've all heard about the lost decade and other things. Don't let that noise discourage you. Because if you put together a plan and organize and figure out what your goals are, like I've said, the risk levels and your age, all this other noise goes away. Because I know, like I said, human creatures were very negative animals and creatures. You know, we, we just focus on the bottom of things. The glass is always half empty, I think, is human nature. And I want you guys to realize if you put together a plan, I think it helps combat that. It really does. I've already had a listener who we had a conversation on that um, over the last two or three weeks. He told me, he says, I'm, you know, I don't know if I like adding these bonds. I don't love the fact that I might be missing out on some rate of return because I do feel better. And I've told the story. I mean, I've no, I think I've mentioned it on the show. I've gotten out of doing individual securities. You know, I'm doing my portfolios just like I do all my clients. We, um, I don't own individual stocks anymore. I used to play around with a little small percentage of a few. I found that I sleep better. And um, because I'm sticking to a plan, I have a plan that, that is working for me. It takes into account all those goals as well as my risk profile. And it takes into account what I want to do when I'm 55, what I want to do when I'm 60 years old. And it really feels good because I think not only are we negative creatures who focus our human nature focuses on the negative, but we're creatures that like if we have a plan, it gives us peace of mind. It truly does. It lets us sleep better at night. It also inoculates you to the noise of life. That brother-in-law who's telling you he made 200% on a stock investment or going to the, the holiday party and somebody tells you there about something they've got going on. Stick to a plan, guys, and I'm telling you, your life will change. And, it, and it's something also, another side benefit to setting a goal and, and figuring out what you want to do in life. I don't know if it's subliminally, subconsciously, because we've seen this happen in business. When we write down our goals, all of a sudden, it seems like 
your path gets much more focused. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you look at I know like we we've we talk at a lot of practice management. You know, we've done a lot of things with other financial advisors trying to give them advice on how to, to grow their business. One of the things we tell them is to write down where you want to be in three and five years from in the future. We also say go look at your client base. Go go figure out who your A clients are, your B clients are, and your C clients, and then categorize them, you know, who, who's your better clients and what your ideal client is. I gotta tell you guys, I, I went to so many conferences and had people tell me that for the probably the first five to six years I was in business. I was like, it's a bunch of hooey. I'm not doing that. You know, I'm going to go out there and try to get business. I'm not going to worry about doing all this internal stuff. One year I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I wrote down my goals. I also wrote down my clients and broke out who are the good clients, who are the, you know, who's my ideal client. And I got to tell you, Bo, you've seen it. Something magical has happened. And I think it's really subconscious is that you, when you set yourself a goal, all of a sudden the path starts to focus and clear out for you. And it's not because I think I'm doing a lot of stuff differently. It's just because the vision is clear. And that's what, if you can do that with your life, it works. Uh, you know, and I, I know that sounds kind of Tony, was it Tony Robbins? You know, or we're not, I'm not going to ask you to go walk on some hot beds of coal or anything like that. But I do want you to have a focused vision for what you want to do in your financial life. And then I think that really opens you up to be a happier person. Okay. Bo, I've talked a ton on this show today. Anything I did brag on you a little bit though. Anything you want to kind of close this thing out with? No, I think I think you close it out perfectly saying develop a plan, stick to it. Because you notice in all those numbers we throw out, we didn't talk about rebalancing. We didn't talk about timing. We didn't even talk about super diversification. We didn't add real estate, didn't add international, didn't add commodities. If you have a very simple plan and you trim around the edges, the system is set up for you to be successful. You just have to stick to the plan. Yeah, and that's probably because uh, that's where we're not good marketers. I mean, because I did. I, I talked about the very simplified asset allocation. Believe me, guys, when you get to, and that's where I think where we do add value, we go much, much deeper into investing. We add, like, like Bo mentioned, we add other asset classes. We're adding institutional funds that aren't open out there to the retail. Uh, I don't want to diminish what value I think professional managers like I do. Um, it's just one of those things where I do want to kind of help you cut through the, the dark cloud or, or, and, and really see what you can do on a basic level. And then once you start reaching those goals, that's when, you know, you, you might need a coach like us, somebody to help you kind of really get into the details. Bo, you tell a story all the time, and I, I put this on you at the last minute. The difference between a great college baseball player and a major league baseball player is really I mean, it's fractured. marginal. It's it is. very marginal. But, guys, don't you know there's a big difference economically between the guy who gets the Major League Baseball contract and then the average, you know, guy who, who's, you know, probably the star player in your church softball league. Um, that's what we can do, too. I mean, it's, the, it's those margins. It's, a, it's that extra percent, that extra percent and a half. Or the percent and a half that we save you, or 2%, or, or 10% in some cases, after seeing what we've had go through in the, 10, you know, in the 2000s with the market getting crushed, and if you don't have the right asset allocation, not protecting you from those downturns. So I'm, I'm glad you put it, put that out there, Bo, because like I said, I'm, I'm sometimes the worst marketer in the world. And, you know, and I think I, I try to simplify this to get people inspired to do something and, and don't I trivialize what we're doing. 
But uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. Check us out, money-guy.com. You can write the show. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at money-guy.com. Bo is at Bo at money-guy.com. Please do check out iTunes if you'd like to just give us an attaboy so we keep us relevant out there as a featured um, podcast out there on iTunes. But we really, really appreciate you guys, and we'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.